Our passage this morning and again this evening is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. We'll be looking at that passage in two different ways this Lord's Day. First, in the morning we'll be looking at the sympathy of Christ, and then again this evening we'll come back to the same passage looking at our confidence in Christ. This is a great and and rich passage in the Word of God. So let's hear now. God's Word from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us pray. O gracious God and Father, we lift our hearts up to you, the living and true God. And we thank you that you've given us this precious passage of your word which teaches us of the sympathy of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was with you from before the beginning, the eternal Son of God, the Word who was with you and who was God, nevertheless, he condescended to come to us sinners in our flesh, in our humanity, bearing in our flesh, the miseries of this life, enduring the groanings that our sin had caused. And in that way has become for us a sympathetic high priest, a better high priest than any earthly high priest, better even than Aaron, better than Moses, and far, far better even than the angels. And we pray that you would bless this portion of your word this morning to our hearts, that you would strengthen us for our warfare in this world as we are reminded once again that we have a Savior who ever lives to intercede for us in heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our verses this morning present some of the most important and devotionally warm and rich themes, not only in the book of Hebrews, but really in all of Scripture. I've been preaching through the book of Hebrews for the congregation that I serve in Virginia Beach, and it's been one of the most wonderful sermon series that I've ever had the privilege of preaching. R.C. Sproul is said to have said, I think I even maybe remember hearing him say this, that if he was alone on a desert island and he had only one book of the Bible, of course he would want the whole Bible, but if he only had one book of the Bible, if it were up to him to choose, he would choose the book of Hebrews. And I wish that I had more time to flesh that out and to explain why that is. I've, I've been able to do that for my own congregation week by week, but I hope that these two 
sermons that I'll be preaching for you morning and evening will, will give you some taste of the wonder and the glory and the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ as it's presented here for us in the book of Hebrews. And I hope that it'll even make you want to go and read the whole book for yourself. You see, it's for that reason that this book is so rich and so wonderful and so glorious that I plan to preach on these verses in two sermons, looking at them from two different perspectives, morning and evening, as we consider this passage this morning. And again tonight, I believe here in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, that we are on holy ground. The verses leading up to this passage are an inspired exhortation to the Hebrew Christians to be diligent, to be diligent to enter the rest purchased for them by Christ. There it becomes clear that Christ is the living word, the one who works in our hearts, the one who calls us to himself, the one who by his spirit convicts us of our sin, converts us by the instrumentality of the written word as it is preached and applied to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And now as we come here to verses 14 to 16, we need to keep in mind where we are in the flow of the argument of the sermon as a whole. Because that's really what the book of Hebrews is. It's a sermon. On the one hand, it's a profound and deeply intellectually stimulating and satisfying theological argument. Premise builds upon premise and leads us inevitably to logical conclusion after logical conclusion. But the purpose, as with a good sermon, and this would have been read in worship services in the church, the purpose is never to allow us to remain in our ivory intellectual towers or to remain in the realm of ideas and precepts and principles. A sermon is always meant to affect us deeply in the whole of our redeemed humanity, in all that we are, body and soul, to touch us where we really live, in our desires, in our affections, and in the recesses of our will. A good sermon gets there through the mind and through the intellect, but a good sermon never aims at merely changing our minds. If a sermon merely changes your mind about sin and about Christ and about the gospel, you are yet in your sins because your mind, too, is affected deeply by sin. The book of Hebrews is seeking to bring us into the realm of change, change that will affect the whole man or the whole woman or the whole boy or the whole girl. The book of Hebrews is seeking to deal with us at the very core of who we are as the children of God, and that's true of all the Word of God. And so as we come to this ver- these verses, we need to keep two main things before us, two main objectives of the author. And so often with the book of Hebrews, people speak of the author because we don't necessarily know. I think I have an idea, but I won't share that with you now because it'd be speculative. But the author, the main author, is really the Holy Spirit, isn't it? And so when we come to these words, we know that these are words from God, and the Holy Spirit is working through a human author 
And there are two main objectives that the Holy Spirit has in mind through the human author. First, there's this concern that we would hold fast to the confession of our faith. And the temptation to turn aside is great. That's really the main thing that's going on here in this book is that the author is seeking to to convince the Hebrew Christians not to turn back, not to turn aside. The Hebrew Christians were suffering intense persecution, imprisonment, and even the loss of their livelihoods. Think about it for a moment. If you were facing a choice between an easier kind of Christianity and keeping your job, maintaining your confessionalism and your faithfulness to biblical worship and the Christian Sabbath, which would you choose? Easier kind of Christianity on the one hand, faithfulness to Jesus Christ on the other. Which would you choose? Which would I choose? But the second main concern is that the the author wants the Hebrew Christians to understand how much they have to lose if they do depart. Really, they have everything to lose if they do depart. Because to depart is to turn aside from Christ, to turn aside from the gospel and from the grace that can only be found in Him. That grace is to be found nowhere else. That grace is not going to be found for the Hebrew Christians by turning back to the types and shadows of the Old Covenant. In other words, to depart is to depart not only from the precepts and the principles, but to depart from a living person who lived and died for us and who is even now at God's right hand interceding for us as a great and gracious high priest. A high priest who is far better than any priest who ever ministered in the types and shadows of the Old Covenant because he is actually able to give us the grace that we so desperately need. And you and I need that same grace. And so what we hope to see this morning is that Christ is a greater high priest than Aaron because he is the Son of God who alone is able to sympathize with sinners without being defiled by sin. Let's consider that in two points this morning. First, the greatness of Christ's priesthood, and second, the greatness of Christ's ministry. The greatness of Christ's priesthood. Here in verse 14, we have one of those logical conclusions that I mentioned a moment ago, and and it goes like this, seeing then that we have Notice the present tense there. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. The conclusion now takes the form of an exhortation. The conclusion takes the form of an exhortation. In other words, since it's true that Christ is our great high priest, and since it's true that he is risen and has ascended to God's right hand, what then should be our response? What should my response be? What should your response be? Children, what should your response be to these things? And the first response here in verse 14 is the response of remaining faithful to our confession. And brothers and sisters, this is really where, for us, in the 21st century, the rubber meets the road, isn't it? Because there are temptations on every side. 
to do what? To abandon and to forsake the confession that we say that we hold dear. There are so many voices, and you hear those voices on every side. I can just, for you young people, I can just mention one aspect of the voices that are all around, the voices on social media. How many voices are there on social media that are seeking to drown out the voice of Jesus Christ? And and how much time do you spend right there? How much time, how much precious time do you spend there hearing those voices, listening to those voices in contrast to the voice of Jesus Christ coming to you Lord's Day after Lord's Day in the preaching of the Word? We're to hold fast our confession, to remain faithful to our confession. And so the first response here in verse 14 is the response of remaining faithful to our confession. The second response in verse 16 will help us with the question of, well, how do we do that? How do we do that? How how is that possible in a world like this, in the kind of world that you and I live in? But the first response has to do with our confession. We'll get to the second response tonight. I hope you'll be here tonight to hear that as well. Yet that response comes to us, it comes as the logical outworking of a premise that is taken for granted. There's a premise here that's taken for granted. And what is that premise? It's simply this. We have a great high priest. Everything else follows from that. And that's what the whole book of Hebrews is really written to convince you of, that we have, you and I have right now in heaven, in our human flesh, a great high priest. He's going to spend chapter after chapter developing that theme of the sacrifice and the priesthood and the present intercession and mediation of Jesus Christ, a mediation that will continue throughout all the ages to come, a mediation which you cannot live without for a moment. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. And do you remember what Jesus says after that? But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. The intercession of Jesus Christ is absolutely necessary for you right now and every moment of the Christian life and will be throughout all the ages to come. You depend on it like you depend and even more than you depend on the air that you breathe this morning. That response comes to us as the logical outworking of this premise. We have a great high priest. We, meaning those who confess Christ and the gospel, those who are to be distinguished from those who continue to worship in the temple and who continue to seek grace from God through the ministry of the Levitical priests and through the sacrifices of the law of Moses, we, in contrast, we have a great high priest. That's such an important premise that a great deal of the rest of the book of Hebrews will be an elaboration on this point. It, it raises profound theological questions. How can Christ, who came from the tribe of Judah and not the tribe of Levi, be a high priest at all? How is that even possible? Well, he's going to explain that later on in the book. But all of that in due time. First, first, 
We need to see once again the greatness of Christ. And, and it's at this point that we see not his greatness in comparison to the angels. We saw that in chapter 1. If, we, if you've read the book, you, you would have seen that in chapter 1. Not his greatness in comparison to Moses. Now the attention is being drawn to another line of argument regarding what? Regarding the greatness of Jesus Christ. And the first thing that we need to note is that Christ is described here as a great high priest. Now that, dear brothers and sisters, is quite remarkable. That is something that is never, ever, ever said of any other priest in the Bible. Ever. The high priest in the Old Covenant was a man who was, in a certain sense, separate from the people. He represented Israel before God. He wore the beautiful and costly garments that were specially made so that the beauty and glory of God might be revealed in an analogous way. He wasn't God. He wasn't glorious. He wasn't holy in himself, but he showed something in a dim earthly reflection, a dim earthly type of the beauty and glory of God's holiness. He wore those beautiful and costly garments that were specially made so that the beauty of God's glory might be revealed. He had the, the, the breastplate of the Urim and the Thummim on his chest. He had the priestly turban with that inscription, holiness to the Lord, written on it, on his forehead. And once a year, he alone would pass through the veil, through the curtain, separating the holy place from the most holy place in the tabernacle and later the temple. And when he entered in, what would he bring? He better not enter in without it. He would bring the blood of the sacrifices of Israel whose names were written on his breastplate and on his shoulder pieces into the presence of God. He would bring Israel and the sacrifice for her sin into the presence of God. And he would sprinkle the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant. Nowhere do we read that he ever sat on the mercy seat. That's important. Because that's a throne. And this priest is not a royal priest. Though he is a high priest. He's not a royal high priest. Never do we hear that he ever sat on the mercy seat. He was merely a priest. Merely a servant of God and the people of God. He was not a king. His role was very limited. Even if there may have been some dignity or prestige in the minds of God's people as they considered the person of the high priest, he was just a man. And a sinful man at that. Who needed to bring sacrifices for his own sin. But the reality was, here was a man like any other man. Here was a man who needed, before he could offer a sacrifice for the sins of God's people, to offer a sacrifice for his sins. And there was nothing intrinsically great about any of Israel's high priests. The fact that there was a succession of them, one after the other, after the other, after the other, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. That is further evidence of the very point. No merely human priest throughout the whole history of Israel had ever offered a sacrifice that could re render all further sacrifices unnecessary and obsolete. You see, that's what Jesus did with his one sacrifice for sin forever. The point, of course, is that Jesus is no ordinary high priest. And keep in mind the objection that he doesn't qualify to be a high priest 
because of his lineage, is going to be addressed later in the book. That's not the point here. We're moving to that point, but we need to understand these things first. Here, the point is to emphasize his greatness, his glory, his superiority, his supremacy over every high priest who ever ministered under the old covenant system. And that point is immediately underscored by these words, who has passed through the heavens. The underlying theological assumption is that only a great high priest can secure for us the kind of salvation that you and I so desperately need. A holy high priest. The only kind of high priest that will do for us is the kind that God sent in His Son. We are not holy. God is. We are unholy. And even the holiest of men This is a lesson that was taught in the Old Covenant all the way through, from beginning to end. Even the holiest of men is unholy in God's sight. Recently at RPC, we hosted an outreach Bible study for those who live in the neighborhood around our church. And we used Dr. R.C. Sproul's excellent teaching series, The Holiness of God, Sproul says this, this is an interesting point he makes in those videos, that almost no one will ever claim to be perfect. Have you ever noticed this? No one claims to be perfect. No one. I don't think I've ever met anyone who ever has claimed to be perfect. But, paradoxically and utterly inconsistently, most people will claim, not perfect on the one hand, but good person on the other. I'm not perfect, but I'm a good person. I'm not perfect, but I'm a good person. And why is that? Why do people say that? Is it, is, it because, is it because our conscience is really an effective witness against us that all have sinned and fallen far short of the glory of God? Why do, why do people even admit that they're not perfect if they think that they're good? We're going to deceive ourselves. We tell ourselves that because we are not perfect, that God must not demand or require perfection, perfect holiness. Yet it's precisely at this point that the greatness of Christ comes so clearly into view and the greatness of our need of Him and of His perfection and of His high priestly ministry for us at God's right hand. He's a great high priest. He's great in holiness, infinitely great in holiness. And that's exactly the kind of high priest that you and I need. We read here that Christ is the great high priest who has passed through the heavens. And do you know why that language is so significant? Because it's language that compares Christ with every earthly and every human priest who ever went before him. It's language that teaches us that there really is no comparison at all. There's no comparison. In the tabernacle and in the temple, the high priest would go out of the sight of the people and even out of the sight of the other priests. He would pass through the curtain that separated the most holy place from the holy of holies. And you see the point here is that when Jesus ascended up into heaven, he passed through the atmospheric heavens and the natural heavens. The curtain was torn apart, we might say. And the apostles and those 
who were there, they saw it. They saw that glimpse of the supernatural glory. They saw the rending of the heavens. They saw the heavens split open and Jesus ascending into the most holy place in heaven. The heavenly temple. Can you imagine what it would have been like to see that sight? And then to think, I will one day be there with him because he has gone in before as the anchor of my soul. The curtain was torn apart and he's out of our sight now. But the promise that we have is that just as the high priest would come back out and bless the people, the Son of God will come again in glory with all the holy angels and with all the saints to bring us into our promised rest. And so on the basis of the infinite greatness of our high priest, we are exhorted, urged to hold fast our confession. It's one of the main notes that the author of Hebrews is sounding. Don't lose sight of the greatness of Christ. Consider who He is. Consider who He is as God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. He Himself is the sum and the substance of our confession and of our hope. If you want to know what it is that we confess as Christians, we say Jesus Christ and all that He is. He is our confession. He is our hope. He himself is the sum and the substance of our confession and our hope. He himself is the gospel. He himself is the way and the truth and the life. And if we confess with our mouths that he is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we have the promise from God that we shall be saved. Do you believe that promise from the heart? Young people, children, do you believe that the one that you cannot see, Jesus, has gone in to the holiest place of all? And though you can't see Him now, do you love Him? And do you long for His return? That's what it means to be a Christian. Are you holding fast to that confession, dear brothers and sisters? Are you holding fast to that confession even as the world around us is seeking to test and to shake and to mock and to discredit Christ and His truth? Hold fast to Him. Hold fast to Him Lord's Day after Lord's Day. Hold fast to Him in family worship. Hold fast to Him in your private prayer closet. Hold fast to Christ He's all that we have. Hold fast to Him by holding fast to those things that you've confessed before God and His people when you took your vows of church membership. Because those vows really summarize the confession of your faith, don't they? Hold fast. You've been given the great privilege of being raised in families and in a church, children, in, in a church where Christ is, is confessed. Hold fast to that. Don't turn aside from that when you go off to college. When you get ready to look for a spouse, hold fast to Christ above all else. 
Will you confess Him as your Lord and your Savior and your great High Priest? He's such a great High Priest. But His greatness is seen not only in His resurrection and in His ascension glory, His greatness is seen also in another way. And that brings us to the greatness of Christ's ministry. It's the ministry of Christ as the risen and ascended and heavenly High Priest that now becomes the focus of verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. What we have here is a most comforting and compelling truth negatively stated. A comforting, compelling truth negatively stated. First of all, it's a a negative statement of compelling and comforting theological truth. In English, we have this convention against that, don't we? We have this convention against stating things in this way. Children, you probably know that if you use a double negative in your English composition class, your paper is probably going to be rejected. Or at least it's going to come back with a bit of red ink on it. But in Hebrew, this is a way of making something more emphatic, this double negative. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Which is to say, we have a high priest and such a great high priest. It's a double negative. It it amounts to a strong and emphatic affirmation that we have such a great high priest, a great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Not because he was overcome by any of our weaknesses, but because he overcame them in the flesh. Because he overcame them most especially at the cross. He triumphed over principalities and powers in our human flesh. And so it's at this point that we come to this great and wonderful doctrine of the sympathy of Christ. The sympathy of Christ. There's a whole book on that subject by Octavius Winslow. The sympathy of Christ. I would commend that book to you. Especially if you're Asking yourself the question, where is God's sympathy for me in my circumstances? Have you ever been really, really sick? And in your sickness, someone came alongside of you. Maybe it was your mother. Maybe it was your spouse. Maybe it was one of your children. And they came alongside of you in your sickness, in your weakness, in your infirmity. And and if you've ever had that happen, you know that this comfort that comes when someone sympathizes with you in your weakness. You long for it. You're so thankful for it. The word here in our text is sympatheo, and it's a, it's a word that means to suffer alongside of or to feel deeply the need or the pain or the misery of another person. Do you sympathize with your brothers and sisters in Christ when they're hurting, when they're suffering, when they're in the hospital? when they've lost a loved one. And often it's having suffered similarly as another that enables us to extend that kind of sympathy to them. We've suffered ourselves. We know what it's like. And so we're able then to come alongside and to extend sympathy to them. One of our children was much more sympathetic toward a sibling after actually experiencing the same stomach virus that that sibling suffered from. No sympathy. 
really, until that sibling suffered that same virus and was able to say, I, now I know what it was like. So sorry I wasn't more sympathetic at the time. If you're sympathetic towards someone, you have a great concern and a compassion for them in their troubles and in their sufferings and in their need. But you and I know that sympathy really only goes so far. Human sympathy only goes so far. You may be quite sympathetic and yet unable to do anything to relieve me in in, in my suffering. That kind of sympathy is certainly a blessing from the Lord, isn't it? To have at least some sense of sympathy. But that's not the kind of sympathy set for us here The sympathy of Christ is that human sympathy of one who knows what it's like to suffer, but it's far, far exceedingly abundantly more than that. The sympathy of Christ is omnipotent sympathy, brothers and sisters. It's not weak, powerless, ineffectual sympathy like my sympathy is. It's the sympathy of the eternal and sinless Son of God, almighty and infinite and everlasting and efficacious sympathy. Here the context tells us that this is a sympathy that actually has power to relieve us in our suffering and in the greatness of our need. That's unlike any sympathy we've ever experienced from anyone else. Sympathy that's actually able to Relieve our suffering. Jesus is presented here as the great high priest who is great precisely because of the greatness of his sympathy. His ability not only to understand and to know our weakness, but his ability to actually relieve us and to provide the remedy that we so desperately need. And so Jesus is presented to us here not only as the one who is able to sympathize with us because he became man, but because he is transcendent over our weakness as the God-man. He sympathizes with us not only because we are needy and because we are human, but because we are his people, we are members of his body, we are his flesh and his bones, we are his beloved bride, we are one with him and he is one with us, and that's why he sympathizes with us. Notice the word for in verse 15, such a precious word. That little word tells us that even though Christ is such a great, such an infinitely great high priest, he is nevertheless not so far removed from us that he's unable to sympathize with us. He's passed through the heavens and yet able to sympathize with us like no one else can. Isn't it true that we so often, when we're suffering, Seek a human comforter because that human comforter is visible and present in a way that we think that Jesus is not. And Jesus is not visible to us. But how much more present is he than any human comforter could ever be? Do you turn first to a human comforter in your need? Or do you turn first to the one was at the right hand of God in heaven. He is the greatest comforter that we could ever ask for. And he has sent his Holy Spirit to comfort us. He sympathizes with us because we are his. He's a mighty, yet gentle, 
Savior, whose heart was moved with compassion for sinners. As we've already seen, He, he shares our nature. He's not, a, he's not ashamed to call us His brethren. He sympathizes with us even in the weakest of our weaknesses, even in the most sinful of your sins. He sympathizes with you, even there. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you take comfort from knowing that? Is there any human being who sympathizes with you in your sin like Jesus? You know the answer to that question. He sympathizes with us even in the most sinful of our sins, but He does so in a manner that perfectly meets us right at the point of our need, and He Himself is without sin. So often a human sympathizer sympathizes in a way that's not helpful to us, sympathizes with us in a way that actually allows us to stay in our sin. Does Jesus do that? Does He sympathize with us in a way that allows us to think that our sin is not sin? Or that our sin does not need to be addressed? No, He sympathizes with us so much that He can't allow us to remain as we are. But He longs to change us. And He longs that we would long to be changed and transformed. You see... Jesus was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. And this is so crucial to the argument. This is so crucial for our comfort. Where Adam failed, Christ did not fail. The sympathy of Christ is perfect not only because He suffered for us in our human nature, but because it was in our human nature, even in a human nature that was weak with the infirmities that came as the result of the fall. But a human nature which was united in the person of the eternal Son of God to the divine nature. It's for that reason that not only did Christ not sin, but He could not sin. I believe that so strongly. It's for that reason that not only did Christ not sin, but He could not sin. Just as it was impossible for death to hold Him, it was impossible for sin to defile or to dethrone Him. Only a sinless Savior, a Savior incapable of the least inclination of desire contrary to the will of God, only that kind of Savior could sympathize with us to the degree that we needed in our salvation. Another word for that is impeccable. He was impeccable. He could not sin. Have you ever thought that there's a sense in which Jesus did not suffer as you and I suffer because He was God? When you and I suffer, we suffer as sinners. We suffer as those who have merited the everlasting judgment and condemnation and wrath of God. But Jesus neither had a sin nature nor did He ever commit the least sin, even in His heart. And it's precisely for that reason that His temptations and His sufferings were far more intense and far more dreadful than even the worst of yours will ever be. He faced direct conflict with the devil. 
He endured the very wrath of God at the cross. He faced even the temptation to shrink back from going to the cross and met that temptation with faith in God, knowing the dread and the awfulness of what he was about to endure in a way that you and I could not ever possibly know it because he was holy and we are not. But do you see the emphasis of verse 15? It's an emphasis that will take us right into the response that we're being called to in verse 16 that we'll come back to again tonight. The emphasis is not on Christ's sympathy for us merely as a feeling. The emphasis is on his ability to meet us in our need and to supply our need perfectly and fully and forever precisely because he is our great high priest greater than Aaron, greater than any priest because he is a priest without sin. It's not only crucial that God was, that Christ was victorious over sin, but that Christ was victorious even over every temptation to sin. And that victory is what you and I have become unworthy partakers of in him. We become partakers of his victory. His perfect victory, not only over sin, but over every single temptation of the flesh, of the world, of the devil. As John Calvin says, these infirmities Christ of his own undertook, and he willingly contended with them, not only that he might attain a victory for us, but that we may feel assured that he is present with us whenever we are tried by them. Dear believer in Christ, are you tempted and tested and tried? Are you sorely afflicted by your own flesh? Are you weary because of your sin? Are you discouraged because your temptations to sin are so many and your victories over them are so, so few? Well, take heart and rest in the sympathy of Jesus Christ this morning. Rest in His sympathy. He has drawn very, very, very near to you, dear believer, in omnipotent, condescending, covenantal sympathy and love. How will you respond? The next verse, which we'll look at more closely tonight, the next verse calls forth a response of thankfulness and love. Let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We've seen this morning that Christ is a greater high priest than Aaron because he is the Son of God who alone is able to sympathize with sinners without being defiled by their sin. Have you found Christ to be a sympathetic Savior? Even if you can't say that you have, he is nevertheless what the Word of God says him to be. He is in himself a sympathetic Savior, able to meet you right where you are, right even in your sin, and certainly in your misery and affliction and discomfort and your need. Have you found him to be such a Savior? 
Draw near to him and you will surely find that it was his nearness to you that has first brought you by his grace near to him. Christ is a great and gracious Savior and a merciful high priest. May we know his sympathy toward us more and more and more as we meditate on the greatness of his mercy and of his ministry for us right now at the right hand of God. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, gracious God and Father, how we thank you for Jesus. And how we thank you for the greatness of his sympathy, for the greatness of his present ministry of intercession for us right now at your right hand. Help us, O oh Lord, to hold fast the confession of our faith and to hold fast by going to him for the grace that we need in time of need. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.